Welcome to Testing Code, a podcast about software development and software testing. Episode 19. In this episode, I interview Robert Collins, current core maintainer for Python's unit test module. I've been restudying unit tests recently, and I mostly wanted to ask Robert a bunch of clarifying questions. This is an intermediate to advanced discussion of unit test. Many great features of unit tests go by quickly in this talk, so please let me know if there's something you'd like me to cover in more depth as a blog post or future episode. A few of the topics we cover are, how did Robert become the maintainer of unit test? Unit test 2 as a rolling backport of unit test. Test and class parameterization with subtests and test scenarios. Which extension to unit test most closely resembles PyTest fixtures? Comparing PyTest and unit test. Will unit test ever get assert rewriting? And future changes to unit test. And we cover more things. A little note about audio quality. There's a lot of great information in this interview. There's also a weird rattle noise that's in part of it. I've done my best to reduce it in post-processing, but honestly, I'm not a guru at audio editing and removing unwanted sounds. I think that the information is well worth putting up with this annoyance, but I want to apologize anyway. If you know how to fix things like this, contact me. Special thanks to my wonderful Patreon supporters. Visit patreon.com slash testpodcast, and you can become one too. If you're already a supporter, thank you. If you're not supporting, please consider it. We cover a lot of topics in the show, and I'm including links in the show notes at pythontesting.net slash 19. Hey, Robert. Hey, Brian. How are you going? I'm doing okay. I really appreciate you coming on. Um, Would you introduce yourself uh, to my listeners and tell me about a little bit about your history and background? So my name's Robert Collins, and I've been a test-driven advocate and a a sort of testing advocate in a more general sense for about 16 years now. And um, I know just wherever I go, I end up working on tooling related to or supporting testing just as part and parcel of making software projects work. It seems so fundamental. These days, it's like fantastic because nearly everybody has a baseline and say, we're going to have tests and we're going to have unit tests. But I remember the bad old days where you, you had entire projects running mission-critical internet infrastructure that did not have a test suite. Or they had one that was broken, which is almost worse. So what types of uh, projects do you normally work on? Are, um, are they internet-related or...? You know, I can't think of a, a project I haven't that hasn't been internet related in some way in the last, you know, however long. Uh, most recently, I've been working at HP on OpenStack, and that's involved OpenStack itself, as well as working upstream of OpenStack in the ecosystem that um, OpenStack development depends upon. So the Python ecosystem and um, related testing libraries and tools for that as well as the packaging ecosystem, so PIP, which is obviously used by a huge number of people, and, and uh, it's been fun getting changes into that. Oh, so you've, you've contributed things to PIP as well? Yes, so my 15 minutes of internet fame were when I added the wheel cache to PIP. So if it downloads, say, NumPy or something, and compiles it to install it into a virtual env, and then you make another virtual env five minutes later, if you're using PIP6, uh, it will compile it every time, and you'll be going, my gosh, Python is so slow, it takes five minutes to install what I'm using. 
And if you use PIP7 with the wheel cache, or maybe it's 7.1, I forget the exact number, uh, then when you do that the first time it compiles it, it builds a binary wheel and keeps a copy of that on your local disk and the next virtual env you make. It's a one-second operation to unpack the wheel onto disk, and all of a sudden things feel nice and fast and snappy. Does, does that work with even um, if I've got like a local, um, a local PIP server? Yeah, because it's a client-side cache. So if, as long as you're using the same user code, which because the cache is in tilde stroke dot cache, as long as you're using the same user code and you're not cleaning it out every time or anything like that, then yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's cool. Yeah. It's on my to-do list to set up a uh, PIP server for our work group. Yeah, something like DevPy can be really quite useful, and you can upload binary wheels back to DevPy. Um, there's the new thing, uh, the mini Linux spec that was done, which with PIP 8.1, I think it is, will honor that, and that will let you have wheels up on PyPy. So this binary wheel cache becomes a bit less important. So if you've got stuff that can't be cached for some reason or uh, you've got lots of different Linuxes, then building a wheel of that spec and uploading it might be an advantageous thing to do. Okay. Well, that's, uh, um, now I've got my wheels turning in my head. <laughs> uh, didn't even mean that for be, to be a pun. Uh, but um, um, what I really wanted to get you on to talk about was unit test and related things. So how did you come to be part of the unit test I guess core developer or only developer? I'm not sure. Yeah, so, I mean, unit test in Python's got a pretty long history. It's had a bunch of different maintainers over the years who have stepped up and said, look, I'll look after it for a while. I got into it from Michael Ford, who was the active maintainer at the time, and he and I collaborated around some patches or ideas. I've been maintaining things outside of the Python core, things like test tools and subunit and fixtures and so on for, for quite a long time. And we had a plan with test tools, which hasn't really come to fruition, but we have we have taken some steps along the path. The plan was to prototype improvements to unit tests and then submit them as patches to unit tests to make unit tests better. And as I said, some of the things we've done, like the load tests protocol, is work that came out of test tools. So... I don't know whether I should go shallow or deep. I'll just I'll just go deep and we'll see where that leads us. Sure. A test suite is in memory a bunch of test case objects that have been parameterized with the function they're going to run, and they've got their class wrapped around them, which gives you hooks into setup and teardown and helper methods. And they are arranged in a container, a test suite. And the container can have some behaviors itself. So class setup and module setup are implemented as behaviors on the, t- class, the, the, the suite object, not on the individual test case. Okay. And this is because if you've got 35 separate test case objects, how do they know to collaborate to do class setup once at the beginning and once at the end? And the answer is that the suite, which owns all of those tests, look at the, looks at the class of the next test that's going to run to decide if it's time to run the teardown for the, the class teardown. And similarly, to decide whether to run the module teardown. But this is shoved in the core. So if you want to add another suite with its own behavior, you've got no way of doing that from the command line. In 2.6, this was the case. In 2.7 and up, you've got a thing called the load tests protocol, which is a hook unit test will look for when it, the standard loader will look for this when it loads the tests from a package or a, a module. 
and it invokes it with the loader, the tests it's found so far, and um, I forget what the third parameter is. I think it's the pattern the user gave. Anyway, you can use that to introspect the tests, and you can filter out tests that you shouldn't run on a particular platform, for example, if you didn't want to mark them as skipped. Or you can decorate the tests in any way that makes sense. So you can do an arbitrary transformation to your test suite. Hmm. Well, i got to investigate this a bit more. Yeah. One of the things you can do, for instance, is to imagine that you had a bunch of declarative tests that you're going to write as, say, YAML files. Okay. You can shove them in a directory, and as long as somewhere, it doesn't even have to be above it, just as long as somewhere in your test discovery path, there is a load test implementation that knows how to look for those files and transform them into objects that can be executed like unit tests, then that will be perfectly compatible with any runner that supports the standard unit test contract of creating the loader, calling loader discover, and then executing the result. So this gives you a, a, a huge extension point. Okay. And we put that together. Uh, the history for that is that we put it into Bazaar because we wanted to be able to transform a bunch of the tests in Bazaar in a fairly systematic way, and we wanted to figure out how to also be compatible with standard runners. So we looked around, and there was a bunch of ad hoc ways. So I think Zope had a, an idiom of having a test suite method that the runner would look for, and Twisted had their own thing, and we were like, yeah, okay, so there's all these different things, but they're not, they're, they weren't sufficiently general. Or they were sufficiently general, but they didn't take any inputs, so you couldn't actually make them fast, or, you know, that kind of thing. So we came up with a good thing. We put it into test tools. We used that back in Bazaar. We made sure it worked. And then I went and spoke upstream, and Michael and I chatted. He's like, yeah, sure. Um, how would that work? And I said, look, you know, this is, this is the exact thing we do. And he said, okay, it makes sense. He tweaked it a little to make more sense for the discovery logic in Unit Test 2, and then it went into Unit Test 2 and to the Python Unit Test module as well. Okay. Following on from that, Michael ended up working on a, a huge amount of Go stuff for Canonical and having very little time for Unit Test. So I said, look, you know, do you, do you need some help maintaining Unit Test? And he said, yeah, that would be great. Here, have the commitment. Okay. That's how I became a, a part of Unit Test Core. Yeah. So is there are there are there how many people are committing to unit test core? Do you know? On a day to day basis, probably about zero point zero zero one or something. <laughs> it doesn't change very often. Um, well, I, so I had a question about this the, the unit test too. That's a a backport, right? Does it is that kept up to date? Is it um, up to three five, for instance? Yeah, yeah. So so what I um when I started maintaining it, I said, look, you know, we've got huge maintenance costs at the moment. Unit test two at that point was not a rolling backboard. It was quite old, sort of frozen. Like so the, the genesis was that unit test two was a proof of concept of a rearrangement of unit tests and some extra features in a separate SVN repository. And then it got dumped back into Python in the two point seven time frame. And then it evolved inside the standard library as people encountered bugs. And some of those got backported to unit test two, the external module, but it was it was pretty inconsistent. And then eventually it stopped getting any ports and the, the standard library one just kept evolving. And anyone who was still running 2.7 was facing bugs because the fixes had gone into 3.3 and 3.4 and they weren't going back to 2.7 and they weren't going back to the external module. So there was no path to getting those fixes. Yeah. So I spoke to Mike. I said, look, you know, 
why don't we go a step further than just having me help with the, the standard library one? How about we pick this one up and we make it a, a fully ported, like we just port everything into it and we keep them in sync and then you don't need to think about it. If you want the latest unit test stuff, you grab unit test two. If you're happy with the standard library, what you see is what you get. You can just use the, the, that and everything will be fine whichever way you go. Uh, so we did that. There's now a, uh, I, I wrote some automation so I can just take the commits out of Mercurial, filter them down to the unit test tree and turn them into patches and apply them into the, the unit test uh, repository. Um, and that makes it really, really easy. It's just run that script, make sure the tests pass on all the versions of Python that we wanted to work on and get on with doing other things. So it's, it's a pretty fast process. So would you recommend anybody that's using not the latest Python 3X version to use unit tests too instead of uh, whatever's built into their distribution? Absolutely. Just And, and I've, I've had some contentious discussions with some distro folk about that. So um, my view is that unit test 2 is the latest unit test for any version of Python. If you're on PyPy or Jython or IronPython or Python 2.6 or whatever, then you should use that because it's got all of the fixes. Um, it keeps compatibility with the master of Python, not the latest release, so you will be actually be ahead much of the time from any released Python. Now, the downside of this is you may have the occasional bug if we commit a bug and we make a bad decision or whatever, but we're not in the business of doing API breaks for unit tests, so that's going to be an accident, and you know we'll fix it. Um, there's there's all these extra um, packages like uh, test tools and and fixtures and um, there's a handful of others that are that you maintain or at least have. Um, what what how do you decide what should go into core unit test and what should remain in test tools or some or fixtures or something else? So unit test isn't a good place to experiment. Primary goal of unit tests is to be the test framework that the standard library is tested with. Everything else is like, hey, that's great, but there's lots of external testing libraries that people have a great deal of pleasure using. Things like PyTest and Nose have been very, very popular. Both of those, I think, are more popular than test tools, for example. So the general rule of thumb of God is if it's, you know, if, if there's absolutely no doubt that this is really great, it should go into unit test. If it's a change to mock, it just goes into mock in the standard library because um, mock is a bit of a special snowflake. Yeah, I wanted to ask about that too. Why why is mock a sub package of unit test? Uh, uh, I don't know. That that decision happened before I really got involved in it. But it's it's like mock plays games with the very heart of Python objects. So it monkeys around with descriptors on classes when you're patching in a method and things like that. So it's it's really not in the position where you can say, hey, it's it's got a super stable API. It's not that anyone's ever going to try and break it, but that its job is to pretend to be any arbitrary object. So, you know, there's no real need to have a separate experimentation place for it, in my view. It's like, if you know you're using it, you know you're using something with, with no guardrails. So, okay, go for it. Uh, so, yeah, like, essentially our test tools is where we try out new things, new ways of 
uh, structuring the objects within unit tests or new ways of writing tests and unit tests is where we deliver production, robust, hard-to-make-mistakes code. And what I want to do is take a bunch of the stuff we have experimented with in test tools and that we are convinced are good things and put them into unit tests. I haven't had the time to do that. Um, I may have now with a new job. I may find that my, the way I split my time up is different. That could be interesting. Okay. Well, let's hope. Um, <laughs> is it? You'll have to, at, at some point, forward me uh, your manager's email and I'll send him uh, 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 pleading uh, requests. So. Can do. <laughs> um, the uh, one of the things that it's I I'm really excited. Actually, I'm really excited that you uh, mentioned that Unit Test Two is a rolling backport. I know that Mark is uh, yep. because I didn't know that. And so if if people ask me if they can if uh, different parts of Unit Test, I you know I have to say well if you're using version three point three you can use this. If you're using three point five, yeah. there's extra things. Uh, no one wants to do that. Yeah, like that's too much thinking. Yeah, and I I know that that's one of the reasons why um, uh, the request library is is kept out of um, uh, the Python core just for that same re- reason. But um, I guess it's too late for mock and unit tests; they're already there. So, um, but it makes it makes sense. Like you said, uh, the the core itself needs to have a way to test itself. So why not put whatever you're going to use right in there? That makes totally sense. Now I, I've more and more I'm exploring um, some of the extra things like subtest and and uh, what test scenarios. Um, it's subtest seems to be like invisible. There's only like three or four blog posts that I've found that even mention it. Do you mean subtests or subunit? Because they're totally different things. Yeah, subtests. Subtests, right. So subtests got added into the standard library. They're available in unit test two because it's a, it's a backport. And they are a way of providing exposure to the user of a bunch of different cases within some single test. So, for example, if you had something that's testing whether a function correctly returns this is prime or not prime, you could use the with subtest, self.subtest syntax and then give it a whole list of numbers, and all of what you're going to check are going to be these are prime, and then do it again with a whole list that you're going to say none of these should be prime. And it will give you a, a richer view on what tests were actually made, like how many assertions you made, and not, not that it summarizes them, but if you've got verbose mode, you'll see each one is a separate reported item, that these this three was tried, and five was tried, and seven was tried. And... It also generates unique test ID. So if you've got something that's not a trivial example like that, but somewhat bigger, you are able to actually report in something like Jenkins the specific case that failed rather than just one of these hundreds or thousands of cases that were generated failed. Test scenarios is a much earlier approach to doing much the same thing. Um, I put test scenarios together when we had wanted to do interface testing. So we wanted to have four or five things that implemented the same interface. The interface, you know, might have been pretty big, 10, 15, 20 methods, and it was data storage. So, you know, you're, you're, pushing, you're pushing a lot of data in and a lot of data out and making sure it comes back in the right form and the transactions are obeyed and, and all of those sorts of things. But we didn't want to write the same test five times with a different type at the top of it. We didn't want to use subclasses because subclasses are very, very rigid. 
it's very hard to have something that you only have present in one subclass when you're using subclasses to achieve this. Yeah. And further, they're pretty one-dimensional. I mean, yes, you can use multiple inheritance, but most people's brains explode pretty rapidly when you start doing that. And so if you imagine that you've actually got two or three interfaces that end up sitting on the same facade and you want to test that they are interacting properly, you're looking at a cross-product of things you're testing for or ways in which the tests might vary. It's, subclassing is not a clear way of expressing that. So Test Scenario said we'll create separate test objects at runtime and we'll provide an attribute on the test case that will give you the implementation you're testing with or the scenario that um, you want to be able to po be poking at on this branch of your, your set of things you're comparing. So test scenarios is different from subtests in a couple of ways. One, test scenarios multiplies out the test objects themselves. Subtest works within a single test mm -hmm. to emit individual subtest objects. Test scenarios asks for a human name for each point along each dimension. So if it's if you're doing varying in two dimensions, then you'll have a, a human name in dimension one and a human name in dimension two, and it makes you a nice ID with a first name, comma, second name, and puts them in brackets and puts that on the end of your test case method name. Whereas subtests is implicit. It just says, oh, you're very, you've got a set of these things, these are the values, so it'll just show the value. And if you have to make sure the string representation of the value is something that makes sense to a human looking at it later. Beyond that, the ability to represent things uh, of equivalent complexity with them is kind of similar. I guess the last point would be that scenarios works at the class level. So you parameterize a class and you get all of the tests in that class multiplied out by the scenarios you've got. Subtests works within a single test. So if you've got a class of 30 tests and all of them have to have the same parameterization, with subtests you're going to have to have a function that will give you the right generator parameters for your subtests, and you're going to have to call that from each one of those tests. So it's going to be more manual to describe it. Okay, well, I... I can see that like both of those are solving a parameterization problem, but they, um, I mean, it would make sense if you, if you, if you need something like that to take a look at both and see which one works best for your particular situation, then you could even potentially use both in the same project or even on the same class. Like they should, they should cooperate nicely. <laughs> okay. I'm going to have to try that just to, just to see. So that, that'll be fun. I'm realizing that I um, am excited to get you on the phone and ask you a lot of these deep questions, but that I haven't even uh, on the podcast even discussed unit tests at all. Just in the last, say, month or two, I've been trying to explore unit tests more to, to understand it better, and I have a better appreciation for the project. However, I mean, there are really big differences between, in particular, unit tests and PyTest. Yeah, sure. Uh, um, so do you... I, do you have uh, any opinions or uh, thoughts about the differences and that you want to share, or you're just they're both good options? Well, they're certainly both good options. PyTest has the benefit of coming along after Python had kind of really developed a feeling for what Pythonic is. And one of the things I love about PyTest is it's got this very lean feeling where you're not you don't have this defect that unit test does. So unit test has this thing where you've got this one object test case that has got three different APIs. It's got the API that you use to run a test. So that's like dot run and dot debug. 
and it's got the API that you use to describe a test. So assert this, assert that, and and so on. And then it's got the API that you as a user are putting on it for all your own helpers and everything else. So it's got three different masters. And set up and tear down are uh, kind of even more awkward than that. They sit kind of half in user space and half in framework space. If you expect to replace those methods, it's a template um, method kind of implementation if you look at the guts of run. But um, you might upcall or you might not upcall and the you don't actually get told by the framework whether or not you've done the right thing there. Well, PyTest, none of that exists. You don't have this multi-purpose object that's sitting there and serving all these different masters. So one of the things I'd like to do, which would be pretty disruptive, uh, but I'd, I'd really like to do it, is to sort that out, to have just a single goal for each type within the unit test um, set of objects so that you get away from having this tension where you can accidentally break unit tests by writing a method on your own class. That that doesn't make any sense, really, does it? Yeah. If I'm writing my class, how can I break this thing over there? So PyTest doesn't have any of that baggage. On the other hand, PyTest does some stuff I'm not super comfortable with, the way it uses a regular assert statement and introspects it. Holger and I don't see eye to eye on this. He's like, it's cool. We've made it much better than it used to be. And I'm like, yeah, I'm still not particularly sanguine about it. Um, yeah, so my question of will a unit test ever get a cert rewriting um, is not in any time soon. I, I'm not going to put it in. If someone came along and said, here is a really clean implementation, it's not a huge amount of black magic sitting within unit test. It's just a function call to a thing that's a helper that's in the standard library, maybe in the inspect module or in the AST module or something like that. Like, I don't know, three lines of code or something, and it's not mandatory. People can use it if they want to and not use it if they don't want to. You know, I wouldn't object to it going in. The, the, if the maintenance overhead of it's going to be low, the chance of it breaking and needing to be maintained is going to be low, and the potential benefit that people will like it is high, great, let's do that. On the other hand, I don't think assert rewriting is a particularly usable way to write asserts. I, don't, I haven't had a good experience, and I've been using PyTest for some projects, like when I'm working on PIP, that's all PyTest. And you end up doing horrible multi-line string things at the end of an assert to squash in the error message you want rather than being able to kind of delegate that out to um, something that you can share between lots of different asserts in a, in a much more easy fashion. Um, so I, I very much like the Hamcrest style matcher asserts which we put into test tools and we do want to put into unit tests. And there's general consensus from a bunch of folk in the, the Python standard library space that this would be a good thing to do. We'd like to get matches into the standard library. And that's a matter of time. And also, one of the things that test tools does that the unit test doesn't do at the moment is test tools can attach pretty arbitrary data to a unit test result. So, for example, say you've got a unit test that's testing the data storage format for a database. You could take the database directory, zip it up, and attach it to your unit test output. And that will get represented as a MIME-type object. So you know it's binary, you know how long it is, you can ship that around inside your process, and you can ship it cross-process as well if you're using a, 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 some testing protocol that can carry that sort of data. And there's no 
facility for that in unit test itself. Unit test only knows about backtraces. The ability to have a rich assert, your assert may be a thing that generates rich data about what's gone wrong. So back those two kind of things, if we don't want to introduce an API and then revise it shortly after, we have to solve that other one first, which is kind of the next one on my to-do list. Okay. So there, there are, there's definitely um, uh, improvements coming in the future then? There's, de- there's, there's definitely improvements I'd like to do. Getting okay. the time to do it is, is probably the big question. Yeah, well, that makes sense. Unit test, for instance, uh, for one, is, is shares a history with um, the other X-Unit style uh, frameworks. Um, that's a benefit from people coming from other languages, of course, if they're used to different tests, those, those types of styles. But is, um, is there... Is that ever a drawback that you wish it wasn't sharing all of this uh, heritage with, say, JUnit and others? No. Um, at the heart of it, the, the problem with the XUnit structure is that it favors inheritance over composition rather than favoring composition over inheritance. So there's no sort of direct way in to write composed unit tests rather than inherited unit tests in unit tests itself. Now, if you look at things like fixtures um, and matches, which will respectively let you describe things that you want for your test and describe rich um, assertions that you want to take place without requiring a class hierarchy related to your tests, you can get away from that. You can start writing small targeted things and composing them the way you want them to be composed. So you can do that in collaboration with the unit test framework, but it doesn't lend itself to that. So that's kind of the biggest downside to most of the X-unit structures out there. That said, you know, it it created the unit testing revolution that we've got today. It made it manageable and approachable, and it's very simple to sit down and write an X-unit framework. There's not a lot to it because it's got a small number of moving parts and you don't have um, any particular language features needed to do it. So it's kind of a... On the one hand, it gives. On the other hand, it takes away. Okay. PyTest has a, a lot of hooks that you can put in place to extend it, uh, whereas the main way to extend unit test is to sub- subclass or from the different parts. Is, is there ever is there a re- reason to not put hooks into different places, or is just it's the recommendation to subclass? So... The, the current hooks depend on risk of substitutability. You put something in place that has the same behavior, it'll still work within Python's unit test anyway um, because it's a duck typing system. So you don't have to subclass, but the, the easy path is to subclass. So I guess that's what I'm trying to get at. Is there a reason to have or to avoid other hooks? No, look, you can certainly put other hooks in I wouldn't want to have hooks that are global in scope, though. So I'd want to have things that hook in to the lifecycle of a test program and that don't prohibit you from using the API within a larger program. So right now, you can have two different test suites and two different unit test threads, and you can run them. And there's only a small number of things that won't work properly. Okay. The things that won't work properly are things like the standard out capturing, which depend on monkey patching oh, yeah. standard out and standard error. Obviously, those things aren't going to work terribly well because they're globals, but nothing else is global. 
So the loader behavior isn't global. It's parameterized by parameters you give to the loader when you create it. Uh, the behavior of individual classes is parameterized by putting attributes on the class. So all of these things are local in scope, and that's a good thing. Uh, what you generally want to do when you want to have hooks that will let you do other things is apply something semi-global. So you're going to apply it over the entire context of a test suite, but you don't want it to actually be global in the Python process. That's the distinction I'm trying to draw. Okay. So I want to retain the ability to use unit test as a good library, to be a well-behaved library citizen in anything that we do do going forward. Uh, that said, I am keen to have some more hooks that give a really clearly defined lifecycle. Just need to find a way of doing it following this pattern. Okay, that makes sense. Py you've used PyTest then, um, sounds like. Yes, um, absolutely. Um, PyTest, the PyTest fixture model is, is very different than setup and teardown. It, it does feel different when you're using it. I was just cursory looking at uh, the fixtures uh, package. There's test resources and there's test tools dot fixtures. Are those all sort of the same thing? And do they relate anyway to PyTest-like fixtures? There's also Chris Withers test fixtures, and there's there's a bunch more out there. So the history of the ones, so the ones you mentioned are all ones that I've spun out. Um, TestTools.fixtures is just the fixtures that TestTools itself has. Uh, fixtures is a standalone library that defines the fixtures contract. And a fixture is essentially a super... Uh, context manager. So okay. a standard context manager, you can enter it, you can exit it, you can enter it again, you can exit it again, and that's really useful. So if you think of a context manager that gives you a working Postgres database, that's a good thing. Yeah. For testing, right? You just go with my database, do some stuff. But from a testing perspective, you often want a bit more. Uh, one of the things that you want in a big test suite is maybe you want to reset to a blank slate, but you don't want to get rid of everything. So if you think about a Postgres database, maybe half of your setup time is initializing the server and getting the process running, and then a small fraction of it is actually creating the database you're going to do this test in. So one way of structuring it would be to have two separate fixtures, one for the database and one for the server, one for the database, and then when you exit the database one, you can enter it again to get a new one, but it depends on that server still running. And that would be okay but in actual fact, you can get another performance optimization by not throwing away a test database and instead resetting a bunch of the internal parameters. That, like, this is what happens if you talk to a database administrator and say, please make my test suite fast. And it's fantastic, but you're not actually throwing away that test database. So Fixes introduces a reset concept where you can say, I want to start over, but I don't want to tear you down and bring you back up again. So you can take a shortcut. You can be faster if that's possible for you. Okay. And you also want the ability if something goes wrong and you've got multiple, like a, a graph of things that you're using, it's nice to be able to report on all the things that went wrong, not just the first one, which required some different stuff. So there's a bunch of little stuff like that. So those, so far that sounds a lot like the PyTest fixture model. Yeah, so Py, I believe the PyTest fixtures were inspired by the test tools fixtures. Okay. But not, not derived from. So they, they said, hey, that's a good idea, and then did something that yeah. worked well in their context. And I think that's completely sensible. One of the benefits of coming second. Yeah, absolutely. You know, look, if I can sit down and say, hey, test, PyTest has got a whole bunch of wonderful stuff, and some of those things were based on stuff I did, that's cool. I, you know, everyone's winning. Whether an exception is an assert or any other type of exception really matters in unit test, and it does not matter in PyTest. Yeah. 
So, I mean, one of the things there is to, you should never use teardown. You should never, ever use teardown. You should use cleanups. Yeah, I agree. Because you can't really do a bunch of things in teardown and have them all happen. Um, so there's that, but there's also that if teardown, if, if setup fails because of an exception, any, any class of exception, if setup fails, teardown doesn't run at all. Right. But cleanups do. Oh, they do? Yes. Cleanups will run even if the setup failed. Yeah. Uh, okay. Well, so you'd have to add the cleanup at the point where you know that there's something to clean up. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and that's the, the best practice. I mean, arguably, Python can be interrupted between any two bits of, pi- of bytecode, right, by control C. So generally, you'd add the cleanup right before you start using the resource. So say you're going to make a a temporary directory, that one's really hard to do safely. You, it is almost impossible to not leak a temporary directory in Python. It, I, I need to do a blog post on just how ridiculously hard it is to do this correctly. It's very easy to not leak it unless so, uh, in the common case, but just making sure that someone can hit Control-C between any two bits of bytecode, that's the hard thing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So I guess the other the other bit was I really hate the name unit test because people believe it's just for unit testing and it works just fine for all levels of testing. Yeah, absolutely agree. And I mean, unit test isn't even a well-defined thing. Some people will tell you it only tests a single bit of code, uh, but then they're using classes from everywhere that have dependencies tangled throughout their whole code base and things on the other side of the program can cause it to fail. You, it's not really testing just that one thing. And the other people say, well, it is because I've mocked everything out. And then you go, so really you've got no idea if your code works or not because <laughs> you've got mocks that don't tell you anything about what's happening. Yeah. You know, they, they make the assumption that that thing over there hasn't changed. How? And, and yeah. That's a nightmare. Uh, I don't even go there anymore because I think people that believe they can mock everything and have a workable system are just smoking something. A lot to think about here. I actually, I'm going to go ahead and just assume this is just part one. I'm definitely going to have to get you <laughs> on again. Uh, sure thing. Pick your brain. Uh, unit tests is just in the standard library, but is there, uh, how about you? Is there a place for people to find out more about you or get a hold of you if they need to or? Uh, the testing in Python list is probably the best place to grab hold of me for things about Python testing. Uh, I'm also on the, the Python testing IRC channel. Okay. I mean, if it's something to do with a specific project, talk in that project's forum is usually the, the rule of thumb with open source. But I try and be pretty approachable. My um, IRC nickname is Lifeless, so you can get me there, or at RBT Collins on Twitter. And I'm happy to talk about, you know, just about anything. Okay. Before we go off the virtual air, um, anything you want to cover that we haven't already? So I think, no, like go out, write tests. That's an incredibly useful thing to do. Probably the only thing I'd say is, you know, don't be afraid to fix bugs in unit tests. Like, it's, not, it's not static. We take patches. Um, and if they don't get responded to quickly on the Python bug tracker, come and ping me. I get busy, and I don't always go and look at it as often as I should, and I'm happy to be reminded that there's something there that needs a review. All right. Thanks a lot. And uh, we'll ho- hopefully uh, schedule another one sometime after I absorb all of this information. Sounds great, Brian. Thank you. Thank um, you for having me. Wow, what an interview, right? 
I hope that rattle noise wasn't too annoying. If you're an audio geek and would be interested in partnering with me to make the podcast even better, I'd love to talk with you about it. Show notes and links are at pythontesting.net slash 19. Special thanks to my wonderful Patreon supporters. Visit patreon.com slash testpodcast. And again, Patreon is P-A-T-R-E-O-N. If you're already a supporter, thank you. If you're not supporting it, please consider it. Thanks a lot for listening and get out there and test some code. I hope you enjoyed it. Thanks. Thanks.